Good morning. Welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Seth Cropsey, senior fellow here and director of Hudson's relatively new Center for American Sea Power. Thanks for joining us this morning. This discussion comes at a propitious, or I should say a regrettably propitious time. China's plan to situate a billion-dollar oil rig off the Vietnam coast has turned into a crisis in the South China Sea. The implications for the entire region are troublesome far beyond Beijing's placement of the drilling rig inside Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. The act resulted in multiple rammings between military and civilian ships of both countries. I think you know that. It produced riots in Vietnam, which resulted in the deaths of two Chinese workers. It induced Beijing to evacuate thousands of Chinese nationals by air and some by sea. And most important, I think, that the incident is a reminder of Chinese miscalculations and a response that Beijing clearly did not anticipate. Eh, look, so was the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand 100 years ago next month. But in order to be clear, I'm not predicting that the oil rig dispute is going to lead to world war. I don't think that's true. I am saying that the incident is a common phenomenon where relations between states are tense. Leaders make mistakes. Events don't go as they expected. In a huge region where the tensions between Vietnam and China are reproduced with most of the neighboring states that are either islands or have large coastlines, the potential for other mistakes is large. And nowhere is this more true than in the narrow strait that divides Taiwan from the PRC, and which continues, which continues each year to amass an arsenal of missiles on the mainland. Um, although commerce between Taiwan and the PRC continues to increase, the former is a democracy. The latter is a one-party rule authoritarian state. Democratic behavior is often harder to predict than that of states ruled by autocrats whose enduring interest is above all the preservation of their own power and of their ruling party. So this is a prescription for the interesting times that most of us would like to avoid living in. It's also an important reason for the 35-year-old Act of Congress, which provides that the U.S. will make available to Taiwan such defense articles and defense services in such quantity as may be necessary to enable Taiwan to maintain <coughs> a sufficient self-defense capability. Congress reaffirmed this act most recently last year. Notwithstanding, the U.S. has thus far failed materially to assist Taiwan in its longstanding and legitimate effort to protect itself from the threat of blockade by PRC submarines and surface ships. So this morning's conference will look at the U.S.-Taiwan security relationship, concentrating in particular on the ability of the U.S. to live up to its commitments, the threats in the region, and the overall state of the security relationship between Washington and Taipei. 
and here to shed uh, some light on that. Um, we're fortunate to have uh, in order of their speaking, which has been determined by where I found their nameplates this morning. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Pillsbury, who is a senior fellow here at Hudson, um, whose thoughtful originality I trust a future government in the United States will again turn to. Uh, Michael served as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy Planning in their office in the Reagan administration and was the Special Assistant for Asian Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of <coughs> Defense during the first Bush administration. Mark Stokes, next, is the ex Executive Director for Project 2049, 2049 Institute. A 20-year U.S. Air Force veteran, Mark uh, previously served as team, team Chief and Senior Country Director for the PRC and Taiwan and Mongolia and in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. His experience alone places him in the first rank of America's most distinguished Asia hands. And Misha Austin is the Director of Japan Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal his writings on Asia and global security are indispensable for anyone who wants to understand the region and American interests in it. And I've said enough this morning, so let me turn it over to Michael. Thank you, Seth. From the podium or the or table as you wish. I think given the informality of the Hudson Institute, it should <laughs> be from the table. <laughs> it's okay with you. That's fine. There's been a debate over the last couple of years about what is the role of think tanks in Washington, D.C. One point of view is advocacy. Think tanks are all about advocacy. They take money from sponsors. The sponsors already have an agenda and an idea of what they want to do. And the think tank scholars should just fill out more ammunition, if you will, for the advocacy that's already determined. Uh, the other side of the story, the one that I'm closer to, is that think tanks can play a role in keeping debates alive that, that sides in the debate over the last, in this case, I'm going to talk about the last 30 years or so, the, diff the sides have a stake in how the next generation learns what happened and why it happened, especially if the debates were very close in the outcome. The winning side has a stake in saying, we won fair and square, there was no real opposition, and besides, they're all dead. The think tank can say, actually, there was this debate, or there were many debates, here's what the issues were. It was a close call, and now that 20 or 30 years has gone by, perhaps the wrong side won. And so you next generation people should be aware of what that debate was about, because it might come around again. So I thought today I would rehearse for you some of the debates that have taken place about Taiwan's security, and I'm going to indicate the winners and the losers at the time. I'll leave it to you and to Mark Stokes and Misha Oslin to talk about whether or not those debates need to be revisited, and in fact, crisis events may cause them to be revisited. The first issue, and all of the debates involve facts, they're not usually opinions. 
People don't say, I love Taiwan, you hate Taiwan. You, you never get that kind of a debate. You get debates over facts. The first big debate was very striking. It happened in 1949. It was whether or not Taiwan had any strategic military value to the United States. And the Joint Chiefs of Staff wrote a memo saying the answer is no. And the Secretary of State made an announcement. The President agreed, we will not defend Taiwan. If Beijing wants to take it by force, we will not defend them. That became the first fact in the issue of Taiwan's value in a strategic sense to the United States. The answer was no. Then the Chinese military was ordered by Chairman Mao to start an invasion, which they did. It failed. And one of President Xi Jinping's closest military advisors today became famous about 10 years ago. His name is General Liu Yazhou. General Liu Yazhou wrote an article, a blockbuster of an article, in about 2005, saying the reason we failed in 1949-1950 is we were inadequately prepared, we underestimated Taiwan's military forces, and he gave a very detailed account of attacking before you're prepared and how the PLA must never do this again, even if ordered by the civilians to attack. The second big fact that was debated at the time ran throughout the 50s. Shall we put American nuclear weapons on Taiwan or not? Some said no. The winners were those who said yes. American nuclear weapons should go to Taiwan and be kept at CC Air Force Base with jet fighters to deliver them against various targets on the mainland. The Chinese know all about this. They write about it. They then discuss the two crises, and really the third debate took place in 1954. Shall we have a security treaty with Taiwan? Some said no. This will provoke China. It's unnecessary. Taiwan's strategic value is very limited. They lost. The President and the Senate approved a security treaty with Taiwan, and this caused two important things to happen that are still with us today in 2014. A general, and sometimes an admiral, because sea power is very important, Seth, a general or admiral was established in Taiwan with a very large war planning and war fighting team. It was called the Taiwan Defense Command. So Taiwan's military and ours was integrated into the entire U.S. Defense Department and the Pacific Command. We did exercises together. <coughs> According to a number of articles, we had a joint war plan. At one point, Colonel Stokes did amazing historical detective work and found out the name of the war plan. No, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> and there started a period where Taiwan and the United States had a normal defense security relationship. And that meant a second general, the second American general had an office and a team in Taiwan. He was the head of the Military Assistance Command, and he and his large team worked with the Taiwan military to decide what kind of jet fighters, what kind of ships, what kinds of equipment should Taiwan buy or be given 
by the United States. Now, Beijing noticed this. So fast-forwarding to the talks that went on in the 70s over recognition of the United States by China, one of the things that China insisted on, these two offices must be closed. Not just the U.S. Embassy must be closed. Not just no official ties. These two offices, these two generals and their teams that are integrating Taiwan's military into the American national defense system must be withdrawn. Nobody can be there, no uniforms, and ideally they would like the two uh, structures, the two buildings destroyed. President Carter did this. Uh, future President George Bush criticized him on Christmas Eve 1979, the very famous Washington Post op-ed piece. Father George H.W. Bush said, I disapprove of what Jimmy Carter's done. We could have had this same deal, it was a bad deal, many years ago. And a couple days later, a State Department China desk director also wrote an op-ed piece saying this is a bad deal. So the debate shifted then to are the terms of the agreement of U.S.-China diplomatic recognition, which everybody in America almost agrees that's a wonderful diplomatic recognition. We have to recognize reality. But the narrow, detailed terms of how Taiwan would be treated were not revealed by either the U.S. government or the Taiwan government or Beijing. And a very interesting thing happened. A senator named Gordon Humphrey and the executive director of the Heritage Foundation, Ed Fulner, flew to Taiwan. And they said there's going to be a Taiwan Relations Act draft. It doesn't mention military security, doesn't mention sales of armed forces equipment, doesn't mention preparation for crisis. Um, all the things that we know in the Taiwan Relations Act were ultimately passed were not in the first draft from President Carter's White House. So the idea of Heritage's director and Senator Humphrey and the delegation that went was to get Taiwan's government to say something about we oppose this diplomatic recognition agreement and the terms that are in it. Taiwan said no. And Ed Fulner gave an on-the-record angry press conference with the immortal two, two sentences that are still with us today. We Americans can't be more Catholic than the Pope, which is hard to translate into Chinese. I'm not sure people in Taiwan understood this. And we can't demand a full loaf if Taiwan's government's going to settle for half a loaf. So in the Taiwan Relations Act debate, there were a number of amendments proposed that had to do with better terms for the treatment of Taiwan. They all failed. They failed by a few votes in the Senate. Taiwan's government had said, don't do this. We will not support these stronger steps in the Taiwan Relations Act to protect our security. If you fast forward to the testimony let me go back for a second to the military value of Taiwan. In the testimony for the Taiwan Relations Act, the American admiral who'd been head of the Taiwan Defense Command I mentioned to you testified. He was asked, do we, have, do we think there's any military value to Taiwan? And Admiral Ed Snyder said in public, yes, sir. 
I believe Taiwan is equal to 10 aircraft carriers. 10 aircraft carriers. Another witness was then an American professor at Penn State, now he's more famous in Taiwan as a member, former member of the parliament, Paris Zhang. He was asked, do you think there should be American preparations and our Taiwan Relations Act should mention crisis diplomacy, being able to stop a boycott, being able to stop an embargo? It's kind of a planted question. Paris Zhang said, yes, I do. That was put into the act. So the Congress toughened the Taiwan Relations Act, but not as much as what the American military officers were testifying. Then the Carter administration asked Michael Armacost, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for East Asia, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, what about this military value of Taiwan issue? And they said no. They said there's no strategic value to Taiwan. The Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, David Jones, wrote a letter saying that which is part of the record. The testimony of Michael Armacost says the main threat to Asia today is the Soviet Union, and Taiwan is of no value in that threat scenario. So now, if you're following my idea here of think tanks keep alive debates, debates are sometimes over facts. Facts can be in dispute, and then they can be suppressed later. When we fast forward to just a few years ago, Ray Burkhart gave a press conference and said he'd never heard, he was asked, these talks between Ma Ying-jeou and the mainland, could they go too far? Are you Americans concerned about the loss of Taiwan to the mainland? And Ray Burkhart said, and AIT put it up on their uh, public website, he said something like, in my entire career in the US government for 30 years, I've never heard of the idea of Taiwan as an unsinkable aircraft carrier or having any military strategic value to the United States. So when we come to today, Seth, this basic debate continues. Does Taiwan's military connection, for lack of a better term, with the United States, does it matter to us or not? Is this just something we do uh, because people in Taiwan want to buy weapons or uh, because of some pressure from the Taiwan Relations Act. <coughs> I, I submit that debate is still going on. The second big debate, this is the only one I'm going to try to cover in my remaining couple of minutes. The second biggest debate that's been going on, again, goes back to 1949. It's over the intentions and capabilities of China. And generally speaking, the winning side has said China faces grave internal economic and other problems. China can never, it's inconceivable that China could pull even with the United States or surpass it in terms of overall uh, economic power. That, that cannot happen. Number two, the youth in China and many moderates believe deeply in democracy. They translate the works of James Madison. There was advocacy in the 80s of a balance of power national election system. And these forces, as long as we don't disturb them, as long as we don't disturb these forces, they are inevitably going to turn China into America's 
possibly America's best friend in history, a second England, a special relationship, a sort of quasi-ally, and therefore, there's a third part of this line of thinking, therefore, what should we do? Not only not provoke China about nationalistic matters like Taiwan, we should also help China. We should accept their exports. We should establish over 100 scientific exchange agreements in which we provide for free the results of American scientific findings. We should open an office of National Science Foundation in Beijing because China made clear very early in 78 that what they wanted most from us was science and technology, number one. Number two, investment, which has been enormous. We invest more than 20 times in China than we do in India for the last 25 years. So that was the three-part set of almost factual assumptions. They're not going to amount to anything. Now, the Financial Times last two weeks ago covered a story. The World Bank new data says China this year will surpass the United States in economic strength if, you, if measured in so-called purchase power parity. China denies this. China says, no, we can't. It's not true. Official, official World Bank study, front page of the Financial Times. Number two, yes, there are forces for democracy in China. They must be in there somewhere. Every time we have a new leader, our scholars write op-eds about this is it. This man's going to reform the place. We're going to have elections, multiple parties. So I'm sure, it's, I'm sure they're right, but it could be 100 years. This debate affects decisions at the presidential level about arms sales to Taiwan. So the last debate I'm going to mention very briefly was if in the Clinton administration, and I'm afraid Lieutenant Colonel Stokes was involved deeply in this, Kurt Campbell was the Deputy Assistant Secretary. I made a speech on it, which was cleared by the Secretary of Defense to be made public. Apparently, the Clinton administration had a secret program after the two carriers crisis in 96 to begin direct ties with the Taiwan military under the slogan, Software, Not Hardware. And talks began in the California seaside fishing town called Monterey. And in the speech that was approved by DOD, I list all the things that Mark Stokes, Randy Shriver, Kurt Campbell successfully did. When the Bush administration came in, Secretary Rumsfeld was pleasantly surprised by all this, and he continued it and expanded it. Now, those who have been worried about provoking China, setting back our relationship, they got the idea that this contact with Taiwan's military, giving advice to them what kind of weapon systems they should buy, what kind of training, even setting up an office of net assessment in the Taiwan Defense Ministry and a strategic planning office, having civilians be appointed for continuity, all of this advice began under President Clinton, according to the critics, was restoring the U.S.-China security treaty relationship, thereby betraying the agreements that Jimmy Carter had made. And this was happening when Taiwan's president was seeking to stop over or visit people in Washington. So to the Chinese, it appeared to be part of a conspiracy. 
the Americans were betraying the arrangements that they had successfully made with Jimmy Carter. So I would say this, part, this debate, this part of the debate prevailed. Their case was successful. They said these kinds of activities have to be severely limited. And in 2004, an American Defense Department official testified to Congress that he hoped for Taiwan security to be improved there were two things, actually three things, he hoped would be done. It's 10 years ago. Number one, Taiwan's military services would be interoperable with each other, which they weren't. Number two, Taiwan's military services would become interoperable with the United States military, which they weren't. Number three, that other Asian nations, unnamed, would become interoperable also with Taiwan's military forces. So that's where the debate was. The DOD official tells Congress, I wish these three things would happen. The other side, the winning side, says no. This is the way to provoke Beijing and turn them into an enemy forever, thereby setting back those forces of democracy. So these debates I maintain are still with us today. Uh, and as China, I heard the Deputy Secretary of State speak last night, he used an interesting adjective about China. This is my last sentence. He's a man of peace. He's been in charge of the Iranian secret talks. He's a career foreign service officer. Uh, and people who've had his position in the past have spoken in an extremely positive way about China. Cooperation, responsible stakeholder. There's a number of these expressions that have been used by uh, the secretary and deputy secretary of state over the years. Last night... Deputy Secretary Burns called China pugnacious. <laughs> well, uh, Colonel Strokes and I often uh, wince over how to translate things into Mandarin that will be meaningful to the other <laughs> side. <laughs> but I'm afraid it comes close to Qin Lue Xing, which means aggressive in the sense of Adolf Hitler was Qin Lue Xing. So this is not friendly. So I maintain that role of think tanks in Washington, D.C., and we here at Hudson, are, are, I think, are doing this. We want to study, and I myself am writing a study now called The Hidden History of U.S.-China-Taiwan Relations. What actually happened? Many documents are still classified. I have requests into the various presidential libraries. Uh, others are working on this as well. But the younger generation, I think, should not assume that they know the whole story of U.S.-China relations. Why did Father Bush, President H.W. Bush, attack Jimmy Carter Christmas Eve 1979? What is Taiwan's strategic value? What does China think about all this? What have they conveyed to us? And they have conveyed one message very consistently. Two Chinese generals have written about it. They say China's core interest in Taiwan is not all of Taiwan. It's not Taiwan's businessmen. It's not hurting Taiwan somehow. It's only one thing, the Taiwan Independence Forces. They use the word independence forces to say this is a cause of war. We will use force if the Taiwan Independence Forces prevail. So the debate I don't have time to go into, Seth, is what exactly are the Taiwan Independence Forces that Beijing has been warning now for more than 10 years? that are the cause of war if they succeed. 
Thank you. Michael, thank you. Uh, before we proceed, uh, go to Mark. Um, I just, your, in your historical Review. researches, review, um, how far back, when is the first and clearest expression of what you would regard as true American uh, interest, strategic interest in Taiwan go? How far back do you have to go to find a, a coherent, articulate, sensible statement of American strategic interest in Taiwan? Uh, well, there are two moments. Uh, one is in <clears throat> our interest in Taiwan Island itself as a piece of real estate, you might say. And that's about 1943 when the bombing of Taiwan by the United States was seen as part of the effort to embargo, to choke off Japan and be the success of World War II. So Taiwan was part of that story. Then the real estate, the location of Taiwan and its air bases uh, was considered strategically important by the United States. The other part of the Taiwan story has been the political uh, movement or forces, the Guomindang Party. Um, and this was another massive debate. It's been covered by a professor out at uh, Naval Academy. He's written two books on it. I think they're both Yale University Press. He's mined the records. His name is Yu Maochun. Professor Yu at Annapolis has mined the records of World War II to show an enormous American debate about shall we favor the Chinese Communist Party or shall we favor the Nationalist Party? And that debate still continues today. When I was a graduate student, I went to Taiwan for two years to learn Chinese. I was warned by my professors, you shouldn't do that. If you visit Taiwan, you will destroy your relationship with China. The Taiwan government has been portrayed by this side as corrupt, they lost the Civil War fair and square, and the U.S. should not have involved, been involved in what's called the loss of China. That's how Eisenhower actually became president. There's a brand new documentary now on PBS by Evan Thomas called Ike's Secret War, and it has a section on just how important George Marshall and who lost China, how important that debate was. Eisenhower chose not to back George Marshall in a famous speech in Wisconsin as a candidate with Gene McCarthy, not Gene McCarthy, Joe McCarthy in this car right behind him. It was a strategic debate over is the Nationalist Party of China important to the United States or is it corrupt and it lost the Civil War fair and square and therefore communist China where our interests lie. So you have both the real estate and the distinction between communi the Communist Chinese Party as our partner and friend. And by the way, in 1944-45, we began to provide uh, SIGINT equipment to the Chinese Communist Party. The OSS went up to the base. Some declassified documents show the Chinese asked for quite a few Chinese Communists, Mao himself, Mao and Zhou Enlai, asked for weapons. They wanted to go to Washington and meet President Roosevelt. They wanted to become America's ally against Japan and they wanted SIGINT collection equipment. So in 1944-45, there's a debate in our embassy in China. And these officers were ultimately kicked out of the Foreign Service. 
the Foreign Service officers went up there, and the invitation was somehow lost that they would come and visit President Roosevelt. And this became a huge issue in American election politics in 1952. Everybody in the country knew about the George Marshall mission for almost a year to go to China, the Chinese communists being agrarian reformers, and therefore our potential friends who would be bringing democracy, and the Chiang Kai-shek Kuomintang being fairly, fairly evil. So this split our debate on China, I would say, for almost 30 years. And one role of think tanks is to keep alive, and Professor Yu's book does this. Professor Yu has spent many years in the American archives of OSS and State Department, and his two books bring out what happened. And his main theme is the Chinese manipulated this debate. They had espionage uh, access to the American government, and they knew how to affect the debate. Good. So it goes way back to 43, 44. The argument over uh, whether France was a friend or not. All right, let's thank you. That's very helpful. Um, Mark? Uh, Dr. Uh, Pillsbury, just to clarify the debates, the, the, the two debates, Please. just to make sure I understand. Because um, you're in a think tank too, so your role well, is to keep, this, I, I, keep I, this alive. I like this. History I, I is still with us. I completely just changed my presentation. Um, <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, it, but just to pull this, this is interesting. Um, the two debates are what is the value of, of Taiwan to the United States and, and U.S. interests? And secondly, what is the, what's really the driving force behind Chinese Communist Party policies in the Asia-Pacific region? Okay. The, the, these are great. I, I agree 100%. I've, I've, um, I first met Dr. Pillsbury in 1995. I was, in, uh, I was just leaving. I was an assistant air attaché in Beijing. Uh, and uh, met the, uh, Dr. Pillsbury, not, when you're out in Beijing, you're, you're at the embassy, especially as a young Air Force captain, you don't, you're not fully quite aware of who's who and, and uh, backgrounds and things. And found a, a very pleasant personality. And, uh, and since that point, a uh, couple years on the air staff doing uh, war planning. And then eventually popped up uh, to work for, the, um, for uh, Secretary Cohen on, on his staff um, uh, and Dr. Campbell and, and the Clinton administration on the, uh, managing uh, U.S. defense policy toward China and, uh, and Taiwan. And eventually, of course, under the uh, the Bush administration for, for so for seven years, and even those seven years, uh, Dr. Pillsbury was a uh, was a, a valued and esteemed uh, advisor, two, three, four times a week. Uh, it was it was, it was fantastic, um, and until this day, and his 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 analytical skills and his innovation and his way of looking at things, his ability to communicate, is just have just been uh, invaluable in terms of in terms of helping to understand some very complex issues. But I like these I like these two two debates, and I would I would start with. A, I also like the fact that you sort of distinguish between objective reality or, or facts and subjective uh, analysis or, or subjective reasoning. And, uh, and starting off with this, and when you look at both of these issues, here is, I would say, a, a, a statement of, of fact, objective reality. And that's Taiwan, under its existing Republic of China constitution, so ROC, Taiwan under, its ex under the current ROC constitution, exists as an independent sovereign state. This is an objective fact. This is an objective reality. There's, uh, I challenge anybody to question that. 
it, people don't think about it, but it is. Uh, you have two legitimate governments on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. One, the People's Republic of China, and the other one, Republic of China. Everything else afterwards is, in, in some sense, driven by some subjectivity in terms of analysis. And it's been this way um, since, well, since 1949 at least, uh, when you've had two, two legitimate governments. Um, and so when you look at these two debates and, put the, and, and start off with this context, uh, it, it's, it, it's quite helpful to sort of start from there. I, I say the subjective reality, and that's um, the United States does not have diplomatic relations with, with, uh, with, with Taiwan. That, that is a political preference. That's based upon whatever reason because of, of, of interests. Uh, basically fear – actually, it's based on fear. It's based on fear of the Chinese Communist Party and the PRC. Because any, when you look at the situation um, – and you spend some, any degree of reasonable time both in Taipei and Beijing or both sides of the Taiwan Strait. You know, th- these are two separate governments. They're both legitimate. Um, and um, and, and it, you know, it seems it makes sense. In an ideal world, we'd have normal relations with both sides. Both uh, you'd have uh, – but it just doesn't – it's for U.S. interests, it doesn't work that way. But let's look at um, – now let's look at these two, the, these two things. What is Taiwan's strategic value to the United States? And the sort of what drives Chinese uh, foreign policy behavior, Th- these are in many ways dependent upon some fundamental assumptions that, that goes into this. And that fundamental assumption uh, has to do with, um, it really has to do with the, the second, you know, what drives Beijing's policy. People tend to interpret be- uh, Beijing's foreign policy behavior as driven by one of two things. Basic strategy. In other words, you have an ideal vision, you know where you want to go, and you go there. Um, you know, strategic, strategic ra- basically rational, rational actor uh, thinking and rational model. Um, People would look at this uh, and, and use terminology like um, island chains, second island chain, first island chain, second island chain. Believe that Beijing's uh, po- uh, foreign policies and military policies are driven by uh, geostrategic factors. <clears throat> that, that's sort of one school of thought in this debate. Second, sc- second school of debate would be that the China's foreign policy uh, behavior is driven by the nature of the political system. It's driven by the nature of the Chinese Communist Party and fundamental insecurities that exist within. If you Use if, if you sort of play off the second aspect of the debate about Chinese foreign policy behavior driven by the nature of the political system, the Chinese Communist Party, Taiwan's importance and relevance shoots way up in, in a major, major way. Because if, they're, if what really drives their foreign policy behavior is based on fear and, and, legit, and, and concerns over legitimacy, political legitimacy both domestically and internationally, because the two are, are very much connected, if that's a fundamental... Uh, perspective and a driver for their uh, behavior, then Taiwan, in their view, is the most significant and existential threat to the monopoly that the CCP holds on power within the People's Republic of China. Bar none. That is the number. It, it's what they call it a core national interest. It would rise above Tibet or rise above Xinjiang. And so Taiwan's existence as a democracy by itself, because of the – because of without saying a word, without doing anything – um, sends a signal to a lot of people on, uh, within China uh, that it poses a significant challenge to the monopoly that CCP has on power. It's an existential threat. So what value does Taiwan have? It kind of depends on what drives U.S. foreign policy. Um, is U.S. foreign policy driven by interests or is it driven by principles? If U.S. has a value, if the United States values uh, principles associated with, um, uh, for example, with um, um, universal as universal values or or human rights and, and democracy, then one would place significant value upon Taiwan. Um, but it, it doesn't always uh, work out that way because, in fact, what we have is um, under current policies on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, both the Chinese Communist Party and the uh, uh, 
uh, and the um, and the Ma administration, um, which is democratically elected, is is that both both adhere to a one China principles. On Beijing side, there's one China, Taiwan is part of one China, and PRC is the sole representative of one China in the international community. This is the core of the, what they call the one country two systems approach, um, which has actually been around for quite a while. Uh, precedes you know, Jinying and, and, and things like this. And that's the core. So their goal is to be able to is to be able to um, to be able to uh, for their legit, legit interests and legitimacy is to be able to subordinate the ROC or Taiwan internationally to the PRC. That that's the fundamental crux of the one country two systems uh, approach they have. Uh, the, Ma, the the Ma administration um, yeah, believes there, there's one China. Taiwan's part of one China, and ROC is the is the um, and one Ch and China means ROC. Period. Now this sounds incredible, but that's just it's the it's, it's the policy. Um, it helps put things in a little, somewhat of a different perspective. So with this sort of being the, the framework, it, you can imagine what leaders in Beijing may think of 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 a, of a government policy. And there's one China, and 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 in some ways actually saying that the Chinese Communist Party is not the legitimate is is not as legitimate of a government at least as a democracy is. And to me, it's uh, worth uh, we're supporting, regardless of what government's elected uh, in, in Taipei. Because uh, as Dr. Pillsbury mentioned, in terms of the history of relations, there was a debate going on between whether or not the United States should support the Chinese Communist Party or the Nationalists. Well, that debate has transformed, because in, in, in reality, what we're dealing with is a debate over, do, in terms of legitimacy, do we support an authoritarian regime in Beijing in terms of extending legitimacy, or do we extend legitimacy to a democracy? regardless of whether it's KMT or DPP or either side of the political spectrum. And that decision was pretty much made in, by Henry Kissinger in 1971 <coughs> when he decided to uh, at least begin to move to replace the ROC in the United Nations and uh, was locked in by President Carter. Um, and it's become even more problematic since Taiwan has evolved into a democracy. So in effect, U.S. policy today by not extending equal legitimacy to both sides of the Taiwan Strait in terms of political legitimacy in effect, has made its decision that it supports an authoritarian system of democracy. In, in that context, just sort of sort of feed that uh, feed that debate. Um, so, uh, with, with having said that, um, the 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 idea and the ideal of having normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait within a one China framework, it's certainly possible uh, in terms of having normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait uh, and extending legitimacy to both governments within a one China framework. It's certainly possible. As a matter of fact, this was. A key uh, debate all the way between, I'd say, the late 1950s until, let's say, 1971. Uh, and that debate was played out within the United Nations having to do with what they called the important question. The important question having to do with representation. Uh, because there was uh, the general predisposition of State Department, the general predisposition even of the mainstream academic community uh, based on the National Conference on U.S.-China Relations that evolved into the National Committee of U.S.-China Relations. And, and the general um, uh, consensus back then was actually to move toward normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait within a one-China framework, um, extending legitimacy on both sides. Um, however, uh, apparently, of course, Beijing uh, was opposed to that. Um, Chiang Kai-shek uh, Kai was not uh, all that pleased with that based upon his own, own view that there, can, uh, that there can only be one, one China. However, his, his positions, my, my understanding, his positions were not universal. His positions were not... Uh, it did not necessarily reflect a consensus within the uh, the government at, at that time on top of Taipei that there was significant, and I would, uh, highly recommend reading Jay Taylor's uh, history of John Kaishak uh, to be able to get a good sense of. of May I of just the, second that motion? Sure. I agree. Jay Taylor again on hidden history. Yeah. Jay Taylor has 
dug out the debate in which Chiang Kai-shek refused the idea, let's keep Taiwan in the General Assembly, even though we lose our Security Council seat. So once again, Taiwan made a decision. Now today, Taiwan wants back in the UN. But it's Chiang Kai-shek who made this decision. And Jay Taylor points out in his book also, secret talks going on between Beijing and Taiwan during this period in the 70s that we did mm -hmm. not know about. Americans did not know about it. Is that right? Well, uh, th this goes back a, a long way. Supporting Once you, your point. I'm supporting uh, oh, oh, definitely. And what Jay Taylor outlines also was, was were debates and how information was reported out of, out of U.S. representative offices in China. Uh, for example, the debates because of the view, uh, uh, the debates between, for example, Claire Chenault, Air Force guy, I'm, I admit I'm a little bit sort of biased toward, uh, against uh, Joseph Stilwell, an accusation that Stilwell just for some reason, ever since the 1920s or 30s, had something against Chiang Kai-shek. He just didn't like him. Whereas uh, Chenault had very different perspectives. Um, and this was played out, uh, and uh, that this was played out in terms of US, U.S. policies, in terms of framing and shaping the perspectives of the, of the, of the, um, of the political leadership. But fast forwarding to at least 1979, so, I mean, the natural, I mean, the obvious solution is to have normal relations uh, with both, uh, two legitimate governments and have normal relations with both sides and, and make that fit within a, a one, China, uh, one China policy. Would today, would the DPP or KMT, either one, oppose the United States having normal relations with the ROC? I, I, I can't imagine why. Um, every president on Taiwan since Chiang Kai-shek, with Jiang Jingguo, Li Donghui, Chen Shui-bian, Ma Yingzhou, has stated in one form or another that Taiwan, under its existing ROC constitution, exists as an independent sovereign state. If that statement has been made, then why would they refuse the extension of legitimacy that to be granted upon that particular uh, uh, government? As a substitute for having normal relations with both sides, the, T the Taiwan Relations Act, in, in effect, functions as a rough substitute. So, but the question remains how sustainable uh, is U.S. policy on the Taiwan Relations Act. On the security side, it consists of two major components. One is to provide Taiwan with um, uh, weapons of, of a, a defensive character, provide Taiwan necessary uh, defense articles and services. And the second part of it is to maintain the capacity to respond to use of force or other forms of coercion. The, the first one is, is, is well covered. So I'm spend just one, one, one minute uh, talking about the second part, maintain the capacity. Uh, and, and just sort of throwing out there just, just for it what I think is, is also another debate going on in Washington. That's between air-sea battle and, um, and offshore control. Air-sea battle, uh, if you read, sort of read the documents, it, it, make, it basically cl it claims that the United States to maintain the capacity to defend Taiwan, it would require possibly at least having the ability, having that arrow in the back pocket, the ability to interdict um, single points of failure in the PLA operational system that could be used in the event of, a, of an attempt to physically occupy Taiwan and enforce its, and then impose its control over the remainder of the island. Un, un, uh, unlikely scenario, but still possible, and one that should be front and center of any planner at Pacific Command or other, other, uh, other parts of, uh, of the U.S. defensive establishment. Offshore control, in effect, says, uh, in effect, it, it, it declares or advocates a unilateral declaratory policy in favor of no interdiction missions in the event of a conflict. So in effect, offshore control, in effect, is what it's really, in, 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 in a way, unless they can prove that this is a way to be able to, uh, the U.S. can maintain the capacity to respond to use of force, in a way is, is actually abandoning uh, Taiwan, just as um, 
just as sort of a, an arm sales freeze. So it's just something to sort of throw out there as an aspect of the debate. And as a final note, let me, in terms of sort of what it all comes down to, a, another debate that should be going on um, or has gone on in terms of some specific arms sales issues um, is uh, there's a lot of attention been granted on F-16s, which certainly are important. Um, but if you ask five different people who sort of look at Taiwan defense issues, you're going to probably see five different opinions in terms of what the priority is. My, uh, my favorite long has been uh, diesel electric submarines. Diesel electric submarines. Um, and it's just a fascinating story to sort of look at when you want to get into history and how this, this particular issue relates to other, other things. Um, 1969, uh, what is it called? The Nixon Doctrine or the Guam Doctrine, uh, in terms of where it looked like the United States was withdrawing from the Asia-Pacific region, was when uh, Taiwan submitted its first request and its first statement of interest in diesel electric submarines. Uh, and they approached the, uh, the Nixon administration. Uh, and the Nixon administration did actually say, okay, we, we, will, we will turn over two used submarines, uh, the guppies, uh, that were turned over and agreed to in 1971. Now, that was fine for a while. Um, but, you, uh, but the United States eventually got out of the uh, uh, conventional submarine game, moved toward conventional uh, nuclear submarines. But there was a movement in the early 1990s where the U.S. industry was beginning to look at sort of ginning up because of the, some of the problems in the shipbuilding industry to be able to uh, gin up and, and be able to sort of re reconstitute on the diesel and electric submarine, uh, submarine market uh, for, for, uh, to be able to satisfy requirements in other parts of the world. So Taiwan began to, re, uh, to generate um, uh, requests, formal requests through the arms sales talks uh, for diesel electric submarines. Uh, the response uh, starting in, let's say, 94 was not just no, but hell no. Uh, and, and don't even look at it. Don't, don't ask the question. Starting in 98, uh, there actually was a change of – a shift of heart, and it's, let's actually take a close look at this. Val two evaluation teams uh, uh, visited Taiwan and, um, and came up with – based on the question, which was, is there a valid requirement, came back with what should have been an obvious answer. Yes, of course there's a requirement. Um, so finally, uh, on April 21st, President Bush announced uh, that the United States would assist Taiwan in its acquisition of diesel and electric submarines. It's very important work. I said would assist Taiwan in its acquisition. That, that's somewhat telling. It left it open. This was, in effect, was a shift in policy. Um, and how this, how this would proceed was really left, left open. Um, one route was foreign military sales. Another was Taiwan submits formal request uh, for the United States to manage a program to supply 8 to 12 diesel electric submarines to Taiwan. The other route was uh, Taiwan assume responsibility on its own and then uh, use go direct routes to be able to work with the U.S. defense industry on coming up with a viable solution. Um, the Very quickly after, after the decision, uh, the chief of general staff on the Taiwan side and the, the Navy, uh, St. Mede, Decisive, uh, made a decisive uh, uh, call to be able to pursue a uh, submarine program through FMS channels or military sales channels. In other words, U.S. government would assume all responsibilities and all obligations to be able to provide those, that capability. Since then, um, bear in mind what was going on at the time. There's, there were some significant issues going on within Taiwan related to economic downturn and a whole range of other things. But, but, uh, but the program has been pro frozen uh, in effect since then. Um, there's a lot of things that, that were unfair on the U.S. side uh, in terms of how this issue was, was approached and how this issue was managed. Uh, but today, there's an opportunity to be able to, to move forward uh, effectively. Um, the, uh, both, uh, I believe there's a, there's a consensus on Taiwan between both sides of the political spectrum uh, that Taiwan's, I, I, I believe, um, are their top procurement priority. 
and there are things that, that appear in terms of moving forward with the domestic program. Um, one problem, though, is that my understanding is that there is at least a perception on the part of the U.S. defense industry that they have been told by the um, at least uh, by significant elements within the U.S. government not to do anything to support Taiwan in its acquisitions. No technical assistance. Don't take. Don't be active uh, in anything. I, I don't think it's true personally. However, it would help. It would help if, if there were some public clarification. If there were some statement that came out of the Obama administration, perhaps a re reporting requirement from Congress that asked that question, or a letter from Congress that asked that question, has there been purposeful, <coughs> purposeful um, uh, sort of discouragement given, uh, in terms of extended U.S. defense industry not to actually pursue uh, uh, sort of technical assistance agreements uh, that could be reviewed on a fair basis in terms of tech transfer concerns and export controls and things like that. Um, uh, to me, that would be uh, worthwhile. Um, but th this is a, a, an important program, and I think it would, um, among all the capabilities that are out there, one I think that could have a significant effect both on deterrence and on, uh, on defense. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, I'll turn it back to you for a second. Um, are there any signs, Mark, that the administration's current uh, willingness, for example, to call – uh, the PRC pugnacious or to uh, go after cyber indictments um, is having uh, an effect on the submarine question? I mean, is there any connection between those? Is there anybody, is the left arm and the right arm communicating with each other? Or? Well, it, it, um, it, it may. Um, bear in mind that there has you have two routes that are going. One is the foreign military sales route. The other is direct commercial sales route. Uh, and you actually have a letter of request, or actually a congressional notification, that's been uh, that's been frozen since uh, 2007. Um, and so, in terms of U.S. government, in terms of how what else is going on, how it could affect here, it kind of depends upon the decision to be made. The decision has already been made, pretty much, to freeze that that FMS side. The decision now, if it, uh, it, with Taiwan, uh, if if the ROC Navy uh, assumes responsibility for a program. And then uh, decides to enter enter into contractual obligations for U.S. industry uh, to be able to support that that effort through a light that that would require export licenses, which uh, tends to be somewhat down the weeds, uh, much less political. Um, and I think uh, it it's hard it would hard to fathom it would be hard to fathom the Obama administration reversing a commitment made in 2001 by not assisting Taiwan in its acquisition by a, a blanket refusal uh, for licensing. And bear in mind, there are precedents. Uh, there are many, many precedents. For example, there was just a congressional notification, I believe, three years ago, on um, to be able to, for the um, transfer of uh, submarine launch harpoons. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that, that's 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 a clear precedent. And, and bear in mind that Taiwan does have four submarines today, and uh, licenses, I presume, come through every <coughs> single day for spare parts and, and supply chain to be able to maintain those those boats. And so, and so this is um, uh, this is it's in, inconceivable. That if a license were submitted to, to uh, for an honest and, and uh, fair review, uh, that that would be refused based on political reasons. Good, thank you, thank you, Mark. Seth, thank you very much. Uh, you know, uh, I, I hadn't heard the uh, the the comments by uh, Secretary Burns, so you know, pugnacious. It's a good move. I'll be very worried when we call the Chinese obstreperous. Then, then I think we got to start getting concerned about where we're moving to. Um, 
uh, Michael, particularly, you know, I, I was going to talk about all this other stuff, but, you know, you, you made me think about this, this glorious hidden history of missed opportunities between the U.S. and, and soon-to-be communist despots around the world. Uh, and there's, there's a whole think tank a program there. I think we, we've got Lenin trying to meet Dulles in Switzerland in 1917. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Marshall and Mao, as you said. We've got Castro trying to be drafted by the uh, Washington senators. This is, this is an entire we, – we, the history of the 20th century could have been entirely different. If plenty, we'd only, plenty of Wall Street Journal op-eds here. It really is. So uh, that, that, I think, is where I'm going to be moving to as soon as we, we close up today. But I, I thought before that I would um, maybe try to step back a little bit because we've got so much deep, uh, not only knowledge, but experience on, on the part of, of all three of my um, fellow uh, panelists here. And, and maybe try to open the aperture a little bit and, and – Talk about Taiwan and the larger risk picture of Asia, or, or, or a risk map, if you will, of Asia. And, and Seth actually started us off this morning by talking about um, the uh, the oil rig uh, contretemps between uh, China and Vietnam. And, and and we woke up this morning to news that uh, you know the, the Thai military had admitted that it had carried out a coup. So we're now in a full coup situation and. In uh, in Thailand and and North Korea and South Korea exchanging some obviously uh, I, I guess for a former naval officer Seth is probably cringing at the fact that no one could hit anything on the water but they were lobbing some types of shells back and forth so by any data points that you want to you want to look at I, I think the, um, the the risk factor in Asia seems to be increasing uh, the data points don't indicate that. Uh, risk is decreasing. Uh, that That is separate from predicting there's going to be conflict or war or, or whatever, but there, there's no real indication that we're moving away from uh, more tension and contention over all of these issues that we've been talking about here, whether at think tanks, as Michael's pointed out, or or, or in other places for the, the past decade. Um, we're not getting to a situation where there is uh, uh, we've moved into an era of, of bilateral or even multilateral solutions of these problems or agreement on how these problems should be solved. Instead, I think, if we take a step or two back and away from the, uh, from the daily headlines, uh, risk in Asia is increasing. And, and I think you can actually identify a risk cycle in Asia that probably starts with feelings of uncertainty about the future. And, and again, winding the tape back a little bit, not quite as far back as Michael went, but winding the tape back, Ten years or so, maybe fifteen years. You know, a lot of uncertainty about where China would be going as it as it started to show uh, that it was able to to develop in ways that even before that people thought it it might not develop that kind of military, that kind of navy, air force capability, and the like. And that so that uncertainty then leads in uh, into feelings of insecurity. And then clearly, we've been in that phase for a while as a sort of second turn of the risk cycle. The sense of insecurity on the part of of many nations. And it sort of spreads out. Initially, you had you know sort of direct sense of insecurity or, or greater sense of insecurity being expressed by countries uh, like Japan or South Korea or, or Taiwan. Uh, and and then we, if you, for example, were talking about Southeast Asia, you know you'd, you'd always come up against these comments by our Southeast Asian friends. Hey, you know, don't let's not push the push it too far with China. We're not as worried. We don't have the same problems. Today, that, that's dramatically different. Even Malaysia now talks about its, its concerns over Chinese encroachment and Chinese assertive activities. So that sense of insecurity has grown. And then I think the final turn of that risk cycle leads you in, into instability. 
Uh, and we clearly have that. We have that in the East China Sea over the Senkakus. We have it in the South China Sea over the drilling rig or the, uh, uh, the, the uh, Scarborough Shoal or the Second Thomas Reef or other areas in the Paracels and the like. We, we have been steadily moving through that risk cycle uh, without any indication, uh, to use another uh, uh, traditional term, that the nations have found an off-ramp. They, they have not potentially gone fully onto that highway of, of conflict. We don't, we don't have outright fighting. But there's no indication that, that the nations have either uh, among themselves determined how they can uh, get to an off-ramp or, or really have much of inter- interest at this point. So, so that, that sense, I think, is, is sort of one of the bigger pictures we should, we should begin with. Um, for the U.S. then, trying to fit the U.S. into that picture, um, despite the, the pivot, and I'll, I'll mention that again in a few seconds, uh, it seems clear that Washington is becoming increasingly risk-averse at the moment that risk is increasing in Asia. Uh, and that's due to our sets of issues over the past fift- almost 15 years now, um, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, economic crisis and um, barely discernible recovery at home except for the equities markets. Um, the, the U.S. in its articulation, to the extent that it does, articulate its concerns and, and its preferences, uh, risk aversion seems to be uh, the guiding principle. And I, I think that is in part due to, due to two, two factors that, that feed into that. Um, the first is a muddled strategy. Uh, and uh, to, to go back a little bit further and, and maybe actually pair it up uh, chronologically a little bit more with where Michael was, uh, I think we are still struggling with defining our role in the world in the post-Cold War world. Uh, I think it goes back to 1991. I don't think we've ever fully figured out what we've wanted to do. And you had, you had George H.W. Bush's New World Order, which, which never really cohered. You had a, a sort of holiday from history in the 1990s. Uh, then you had uh, 2001, you had 9-11. And we've been, you know, whether you, it depends how you view history. Either we've been knocked off course from where we might have been, or this is how history always plays out. It is simply a series of endless contingencies. And for the most part, the, the vast part, countries are, are reactive. And so you can't really say, well, we would have been here if not for X or Y, because X or Y always happens. But, but I think it is fair to say that since the end of the Cold War, we have really struggled to try to figure out what role we are, are playing in the world, which is why uh, so many people have, in some ways, I think, almost welcomed the return of Russia and Ukraine as, as giving a, a, you know, a coda to where we have been over the past 20 years, there's sort of a clarity back to understanding where we are. And in fact, that's, that's wh- let me mention more of that in a second. But I would say first we have this question of muddled, muddled strategy. Uh, and, and part of that muddled strategy is what we as Asianists have been talking about for the past couple of years, the pivot, the rebalance, which I, I think many of us agree. Um, uh, well, first of all, I say many of us agree is a good idea. You know, we're Asianists. We think it's good that the country focus more on Asia. We like that. Uh, it's good for business. It's good for us to, to, to be more engaged. Um, but it's really been a hollow rebalance or a hollow pivot, and I think that that is becoming clearer and clearer because of the, the, the fact that the administration never really articulated what the pivot was for and what the rebalance was for. There were some pieces recently <coughs> that um, 
that took to task the, the uh, pivot deniers, I think it was called, or the, the rebalance deniers. Uh, I, I was proud to be, to be uh, Exhibit A in that. Uh, but, you know, it, it, the piece itself started off with listing the enormous amount of activity that we already have with Asia, the, the enormous amount of trade, the enormous amount of economic, uh, political, social, cultural, military engagement that we have, which to me immediately begs the question, then why do you need a rebalance? What, what is your point for the, the pivot and, and the rebalance? Which is not to say it is not a good idea. It's simply that it was never articulated. And so everyone could read into the pivot what they wanted and therefore be disappointed when it didn't live up to their expectations, whether you were friends or adversaries or, or whomever. So the first part, I think, of America's risk averseness is that we really don't know what we want to do. We have, we have this muddled strategy. The second part is a little bit more concrete, and, and that's the reduced resources that we have chosen to inflict upon ourselves. Uh, despite uh, a $13 trillion economy, we've decided that we are going to uh, dramatically cut our, our ability to conduct operations and, and maintenance for our forces around the world, that we're going to keep our level of commitment and, in fact, add on, in some ways, new commitments, again, absent a, a larger strategy, but add on new commitments while making it harder and harder to, to actually carry that out and, and be effective. And that, I think, feeds back into a, a political cycle of being uncertain and unsure and risk-averse uh, that we see uh, in Asia. I think what, um, if I can really broaden this out to, to throw in Russia and Ukraine for a second and why it's important in the Asian, the Asian context, I think we're just at the, the cusp, um, in my interpretation, I could be completely wrong in this, so tell me where I'm, I'm off base, but I think we're just at the cusp of recognizing that we face uh, the very last thing we wanted uh, for the coming decade or even coming generation, and that's a two-front war. Uh, and here, all of the analogies that are so easy to throw out with Rome and the United States, I think, actually uh, have a little bit of, of purchase. Uh, we face a two-front war in, in the same way that, that the Romans did, that on the – if you looked at the, the, the Danube and, and uh, Rhine, uh, Rhine borders, they faced generations of what we would today call non-state actors, barbarians. And the legions had to be out there forever, dealing with incursions – uh, trying to protect the borders and the like. And that's, that is the result, I would argue, of our 14 years of fighting the global war on terror. We have the, the uh, director of the DIA or the immediately past director of the DIA coming out in an article uh, just this week saying, we are more at danger today than we were before. We have the heads of the, the congressional intelligence committees, the HIPSI and SISI, saying we are more at risk than before, that al-Qaeda has, has changed and metastatized and decentralized and the like. We have the DNI tell us the same thing. This is the new normal for us. This is our future. These are the barbarians on the borders. For, for us, my kids' generation, maybe even beyond that, that's never going away. And as a country, we've never faced that, and we don't know how to deal with that, quite frankly. We, we have the good war as our template, or the not-so-good wars, but they still ended. Korea and Vietnam. This war never ends. And we haven't yet accepted that fact. Instead, what we want to do, as the president tried to tell us, is that it's over. Combat operations are done. Al-Qaeda's on the run. Let's get back to some type of normal. And that's not happening. But even as we didn't accept that, what China represents in Asia and what Russia represents in Europe is a return of 
what Rome faced on its eastern borders, Parthia, for example. Great powers, not hegemonic powers, not powers that could supplant or replace Rome, but great powers that could cause enormous uh, disruption, enormous suffering, change borders, consume vast amounts of the time and energy and attention and treasure of Rome in order to maintain stability. And you could even, I think, extend it further and, and bring in the economics of the eastern part of the empire in the way that we're very concerned about economics in Asia. That's what we face now. We, we thought that, again, Francis Fukuyama, that history had ended, right? And he was proved wrong twice, once with 9-11 and once with, with the return of great powers. And whether you want to call Putin a, a sort of Hitler acolyte, not in his ideology but in his salami-slicing aggression, uh, or simply 19th century Tsarist revanchism, whether you want to call China the same thing, uh, we face a generation now of the return of old-fashioned state-on-state great power tussling for influence, borders, regions of, of, uh, of freedom of activity, uh, and the like. We face a two-front war. We haven't admitted it. We don't want to admit it. All we can talk about in the country today is what we cannot do, not what we may have to do. And so from that perspective, what we see in Asia, I think, cannot be disaggregated, should not be disaggregated, from that much bigger picture that an exhausted, broke, uh, distracted country is actually entering a phase of greater instability and greater threat to its national interests and the interests of its partners and friends and the system that it helped create nurtured, and from which it benefited more than any other nation, that that is actually the game that we are, we are about to, to undertake. And whether or not we have the wit to recognize it, the will to respond to it, and the strength to deal with it are entirely open questions. And at this point, I would say they are all trending in the negative. They are all trending in the negative, which is why I would say it probably a more inchoate sense. You see Americans respond at least in some way to these questions about the world by saying, enough, we're, you know, let's, let's focus inward. We're not the world's policemen. We've done our bit for, for God and country, uh, and it's time that we can get back to focusing on important things like the all-star break. Right? We, we, have, we, we need to move away from where we have been. The problem with all of this, of course, is that uh, <coughs> the world is not a vacuum, and, and what we do does not happen uh, in a vacuum. And so the, the, the muddled strategy that we have in Asia, I would argue, is actually just a symptom of a much larger problem that we're facing today. And at the core of that, in some ways, I think Taiwan lies at the core of that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's, you know, it's the, the single flashpoint that we face, but it, it is something that is very indicative of how the United States will respond to the changes at least on one of these borders, if not the other of these borders, and whether we recognize the degree to which the geopolitical equation globally but in Asia is, is shifting. Um, were we to significantly, as, as I think we're trending to, change the, the tenor of our commitments to, to Taiwan, maybe not formally on, on, on paper or, or whatever papers we have, but in terms of our articulation of those commitments, and I think you saw that actually recently 
most recently with uh, Assistant Secretary Russell's testimony before Senator Rubio, where Senator Rubio pressed him over and over uh, on the, the six assurances and could not get an, an answer about that. And instead, it was part of a much, uh, a, you know, this sort of much bigger global interpretation of where the U.S. stands in Asia. Um, I think that, that may give us some ideas about how we're beginning to shift our own, our own sense of which risks we're willing to bear uh, in this changed environment. And I would end just simply by saying that I think that leads to at least three sort of diagnostic implications. Again, I, I'd rather not be prescriptive today, but I'd rather be diagnostic. Uh, the first is that simply it, it um, by default, increases this, the sphere uh, the freedom of action, the sphere of influence of, of China in the region that we're very concerned about. And, and Mark said, you know, you got to look at, are, are you looking from geostrategically or internally at China? And from geostrategically, I mean, first island, second island, so on and so forth. You know, these are still important factors both in Chinese thinking as well as the, the thinking of our, our friends and allies. And so the, the fact that we seem to be ceding some of that water space, at least intellectually, I think just redounds to what China feels is its ability to have more freedom of action. That would be number one. Number two is by settling for a, a suboptimal security environment, meaning one in which China has far more freedom to do what it wants in, in Asia. Um, the U.S. simply then has a, an, almost an automatic uh, rebound effect where it raises the risks of our intervention anywhere across the board. And that doesn't have to be an intervention in terms of sending in the Seventh Fleet, but any, any way in which we determine that we need to start getting involved, we immediately, as a first step, consider that the risk element is much higher. And I think you've seen that in our response to the territorial disputes in both the East and South China Seas. Uh, whether we wanted to get more involved or not, we have been more concerned about that risk element. And then third, that leads naturally to uh, at least a, uh, I don't want to go so strong as to call it an undermining, but a questioning of our alliance structure in the region. Uh, these are very old alliances now. They're half-century old alliances. And the question is, what are we really willing to do at any point with respect to them? We have already been pressed by Japan. The president finally came out and said the Senkakus are under Article 5. We've been pressed by the Philippines. Uh, we have lots of unanswered questions about where we really would draw the line with what we would do with our alliances and not do with our alliances. And so I think if you want to start just looking forward to wind up, now these are, are three of the results that we may be facing when you put a, the, the changes in the geopolitical picture in Asia into that much larger, uh, truly global geopolitical construct. And what I think the U.S. is facing is, is this two-front war in the coming generation that we've neither identified nor prepared for. Thank you. Well, I'd like to thank uh, our panelists. I mean, we've gotten a, a, a very clear uh, picture of the history of U.S.-Taiwan security relations from, uh, from Michael. Uh, Mark has offered an equally articulate picture of uh, uh, the current state of security relations between Taiwan and the United States. And I think Misha's ability to place this in a strategic context uh, is uh, as accurate as it is eloquent. Um, I, um, 
Uh, so I don't have anything to say here other than, uh, than I, I would like. You're giving us all A plus. Is that a plus. A plus. But Great I, I would, inflation. I would like to give uh, to give. I'm a harsher uh, grader than you. I think. Those of you who who would uh, who would like to uh, ask questions, an opportunity to do so, and in the remaining time, let's do that. And. Uh, um, when you uh, um, when you speak, would you please uh, tell us your name and what company or news organization or agency of the government or whatever you're affiliated with? Thank you. Uh, thanks to the panel. Uh, very informative. I'm Mike Fonte. I'm the director of the Taiwan's Democratic Progressive Party mission here in Washington. A little piece of history that I think is important for both uh, what Mike and Mark put together. When Kissinger negotiated the first communique with his friend Zhou Enlai and friends, he negotiated and gave the draft, my understanding is, to Mr. Rogers, who was Secretary of State. And it said, as you know, that the U.S. only acknowledges, doesn't recognize, that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait believe there is one China and Taiwan is part of China. And Rogers looked at that and said, ooh, uh, I don't think all the people in Taiwan believe that. And that fact, it seems to me, has grown significantly over the course of time. As Taiwan has become a democracy, as open debate has been allowed, as people began to become really masters of their own fate, which they were not in 1971 or 79 when the C KMT was still in control and under martial law. So that's a factor, it seems to me, that plays then into what Mark laid out about the question of the One China Framework. Right. President Ma, in goodwill, I believe, believes that there's a one China of which there's a mainland part and a China-Taiwan part that's all part of the ROC. The Chinese believe, yes, we believe. But that's a complicating factor now that I think we have to take in a, into account. And I believe that, I hope, that the DPP will be able to come back into power, of course. But I also hope that the, the U.S. will stay neutral the next time around. Because the last time in 2012, we put our thumb on the scale a bit in terms of the KMT. So I, I'd like to hear whatever thought you have about that point, because I think it's a really a very important point at this point in history. Thanks. I'll take a quick hack at Please. Uh, just a, a very quick point on that. Yes. Um, in some ways, you have the, you know, the, the two, the two one-China principles, uh, Beijing and, and Taipei. I think U.S. policy is pretty, pretty clear. Um, and if, if what I said before, that the, the framework that we have right now with the Taiwan Relations Act being a rough substitute for having normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait, the TRA, the Taiwan Relations Act is pretty clear about the territorial delineation, is it not? I think it's ex explicit um, in terms of delineating what that's U.S. policy. That's not to sort of dictate a solution on how the two sides of the Taiwan Strait work out their, their, their differences. That's up to the two sides. But from U.S. one policy, one China policy perspective is that the U.S. doesn't take sides. That's one China policy in, in, in a nutshell, it seems to me. Just don't take sides in debate in issues that should be worked out domestically among people on, on Taiwan in democratic fashion and then between uh, the democratic elected government of, uh, of Taiwan and those other guys in Beijing. Uh, I have a slightly different view. It's a very important issue to China whether the United States directly supports your political party, the the DPP party. 
Uh, in the last election, a former Bush administration, or actually Reagan administration too, NSC staffer named Doug Paul was publicly chastised by a former senator named Frank Murkowski. They were apparently, I can't tell if they were on the bus together uh, or what exactly happened, but one attacked, the, the senator attacked former NSC staffer for praising uh, President Ma's victory and saying something negative about the DPP. Um, I, if you read, uh, again, Hidden History, my theme today, there's a lot we don't know. It's very good that you bring up the communique. I don't think even all that story is completely out yet. Uh, there's a brand new book besides May Day, which is an excellent book to buy by Seth Cropsey about American sea power uh, in decline and the challenges in Asia. Another new book is called Maximalist. Uh, it's really excellent. It's gotten excellent reviews everywhere. The author is Steve Sustanovich. He has a whole new chapter on U.S.-China relations and what happened in 1972-73. He's found some new top-secret eyes-only memcons involving what President Nixon said to the Chinese. One of his uh, findings is that Nixon and Kissinger told the Chinese, if you're stronger, when you become really strong someday, we Americans can do less. So we want that. That's quite different from what Misha is implying. Somehow Americans are taking risks by doing less. It, the, the book argues their policy toward China, but, and other policies as well, have varied by president between what he calls maximalist, and he puts Ronald Reagan at the top of the maximalists, and Harry Truman, number two, and then retrenchers who really want to pull back. And he shows how what Nixon and Kissinger were doing in these new memos was a very deliberate world they wanted to go to of five poles, five equal poles, not primacy of the United States, and certainly not a G2 with China. And to do that, the, the strategy, the grand strategy of President Nixon was to build up China. And that was continued by President Reagan, who did much more. Some of Reagan's new NSDDs have been declassified. Uh, <laughs> I got them out at the Reagan Library, actually. Um, President Reagan approved six uh, arms sales to China, denied arms to Taiwan, and started a technology sharing program um, as part of a strategy which is in these NSDDs to explicitly build up China. And my then boss, uh, Secretary Weinberger, was sent to China twice to try to build China into a strong power. Now that explicit goal has never gone away. It's not been removed. Those decisions have never been rescinded. And so if you're inside the U.S. government now, you still think building a strong China as part of America's strategy toward China. So when I bring up the hidden history and the need for debate, I'm appealing to really famous op-ed writers like Joe Bosco, who's a former Pentagon China desk member, and Rick Fisher from the Heritage Foundation, and others who write about today's debate need to go back over. Were these decisions based on correct assumptions at the time? For example, the 
offer to make sure Japan never plays a role in the security of Taiwan. This was made by Henry Kissinger, President Nixon. It was continued by other presidents. Brzezinski brings it up in his memoirs. So is that still a wise policy, to make sure Japan has no role whatsoever in Taiwan's security? There's a, something the Taiwan government can do. President Ma has said, I think he's joking, but I'm not sure. He said he's already asked 12 times for the F-16 CD model to be sold to Taiwan just to replace F-16s they've lost. There's been no progress. 47 senators wrote a letter to President Obama. Why can't you sell these 55 F-16s? No action. I maintain that this is explained by the hidden history and the restraints that are on Taiwan, that short-range weapons are okay. Apache helicopters with Hellfire missiles, you would think that's aggressive, right? Hellfire missiles are going to sink ships. Taiwan has explained to us when the, if an invasion takes place, a mother ship has to transfer to smaller amphibious landing crafts. And at that moment of transfer, we need Apache helicopters made by Boeing, very expensive, to fire Hellfire missiles and sink the landing craft and the mother ship at the moment of transfer. Actually, it's a pretty clever idea. So they were sold. They were approved by the past administration and by President Obama. Things that are short-range are okay. F-16CDs, that if you go to the website for the F-16, you will see it's really a fighter-bomber. It can carry bombs quite a ways, two or 300 miles easily. That would be able to attack, as Mark said. That could be part of a sort of air-sea battle strategy to attack targets inside China. We call it interdiction. It's defensive fighter. Now, AEI took the lead. In 2008, AEI, in many ways, invented air-sea battle in an article uh, followed by Project 2049 that targets inside China should be struck. Taiwan should be sold weapons that can do this. One was by Dan Blumenthal in 2008. One was by Mark Stokes and Randy Shriver about the need to sell F-22s. Japan so that the U.S. and Japan together could have F-22s, they say in their article, go inside China and take out time-sensitive targets. This, I maintain, goes against the hidden history of U.S.-China-Taiwan relations, where such policy moves would be explicitly banned. And it's up to President Ma Ying-jeou if he wants to make public the restraints that Taiwan is under. Tsai Ing-wen, from your party, has also declined to make public these restraints. I would say there's more than 10, some would say more than 20. The president of Taiwan can't come to Washington, D.C. His cabinet secretaries can't come here. Meetings can't be... She was asked one time if she would allow an article to be published, or write one herself, about what are the restraints the Americans have agreed to so what we, Taiwan, cannot do. And the answer seems to be it would embarrass Taiwan to make public all these enormous restraints on us that Washington has opposed, has imposed, that are not part of any public record. You can't go on the Internet and say, okay, give me the list. Tell me why President Ma can't come to Washington, D.C. Why can't American admirals and generals visit Taiwan? Where is that in the communique? Or where is that in the Taiwan Relations Act? Everybody sort of knows it can't be done. 
So the Hidden History Project that Hudson Institute is doing is to try to bring out what really has happened as though we're talking to, or Joe Bosco or Rick Fisher are writing op-ed pieces, they're talking to the next generation or to high-level officials who've never been to Asia. Remember when Tony Lake was sent by President Clinton to try to tamp down the crisis of the two carriers, and we asked Tony Lake, you know, how many times have you been to China? We want to know how much briefing material you need. This was the National Security Advisor, the President of the United States in 1996. You know what the answer was? I've never been to China. The Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under George W. Bush was getting him ready for his trip to China. I said to Doug Fife, who's here at Hudson as a center director, I said, you know, this is probably your 10th visit to China, isn't it? I can skip the, you know, Beijing as a capital city part of the briefing. He said, Mike, this is my first visit to China. Undersecretary of Defense in his 50s, highly sophisticated, never been to China. Our government is full of high-level policymakers today who are for the first time trying to understand basic information about Taiwan and China. So that's why I keep advertising the book May Day and the hidden history of U.S.-China relations. My name is Garrett Van der I'm editor of Taiwan Communique. I had a comment of, on something that Michael said and then a question. The comment is the uh, exchange between Murkowski and Doug Paul. They were not on the same bus. I was on the same bus ah. as, as Murkowski, <laughs> and I was sitting next to him, and he was really getting steamed up about the article which stated that Doug Paul had made some remark critical of the DPP. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. Uh, my question- It goes in my book. I uh, need that story. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> Uh, the question is, I was really intrigued by your historical perspective and actually the uh, uh, missed opportunities in the early 70s and the late 70s uh, on uh, keeping normal relations with, uh, with Taiwan. And I think the significant, main significant reason was, as I think Mark and you said, Chiang Kai-shek himself, who didn't want to have anything to do with that but also, uh, let's say, missed opportunities and lack of vision on the U.S. side. Some people on the U.S., like Bush Sr., was actively advocating uh, for that in, in the United Nations, but then he was undercut by Kissinger. And I think Nancy uh, Tucker really had some mm -hmm. very fascinating stuff on that. Yes. But of course, since then, Taiwan has become a democracy, and it's really chafing under its international isolation wants to be more of an equal partner in the international community. So I guess the question is how or in what way could we make this normalization happen? I think Mark referred to it uh, already in, in, in some ways. Uh, the Mayan government wants to go via Beijing. The DPP basically doesn't want to emphasize that so much. So what would be a good strategy? And that's all confidential, of course, no press here. So. Uh, like to have your vision on that. Well, the most important first step is to make public the restraints that make our relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan <coughs> abnormal. If you're going to change to more normal or better, you have to know what are the restraints in place now. How many of them are there? What is the legal or policy basis for them? And frankly, I think that's up to Taiwan. 
I think our system of <coughs> declassifying internal records is very slow. We have some records from World War I that were recently declassified, almost a almost hundred years old. Um, the U.S.-China relationship, as you mentioned, Nancy Tucker's book, her 2009 book, Cross Strait, uh, it is the best book so far. She, um, I found her note cards out at the Reagan Library. I was opening up, uh, up some Reagan Library files. She made a list of almost 100 things she wanted. She was given about 10 of them, but even that she used in the book. She also has a chapter about the firing of Therese Shaheen and the briefing of President George W. Bush, the role of Doug Paul, and why Therese Shaheen gets fired. She's the, for those of you who don't know this inside baseball stuff, she was the chairman of the AIT, essentially our highest level uh, person in charge of relations with Taiwan. She has a briefing with President Bush. She tries to explain the difference between don't support and oppose. And Nancy Tucker found out President Bush said, I'm not a nuance guy. And ultimately, for various reasons, this person gets fired. And the rest of the system sees that happen. Oh, my God. You start trying to push a little bit on these restraints, and you'll be fired by the president and the secretary of state. So that was a pretty big message. I'm only saying to even debate relations with Taiwan, we're going to have to get the help of the Taiwan government and political parties to describe what are the restraints the Americans impose on you. And frankly, I visit China a lot. A lot of these restraints the Chinese don't care that much about. Chinese have a very interesting attitude about U.S.-Taiwan relations. I just to follow on, on this one, <clears throat> I mean, if, if one wanted to think about how to normalize relations with, with, with Taiwan, uh, the first step is, is to think of the, 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 the trigger, the actual implementing mechanism, which would be, so envision uh, what a joint communique, joint communique regarding the establishment of relations between the United States and the Republic of China. Um, I say the Republic of China because that is the name of the, of the country today. Um, and, and, um, and, and so that's the first thing. So to envision what it would look like. Number two, uh, think long term. Uh, things, people don't change. I mean, it makes patent sense to have normal relations. It just, it's kind of, it's admitted, it's stupid. It has been stupid since 1971. Actually, technically, it was stupid not to have normal relations with the PRC between 1949 and all the way up until 1971. Um, and frankly, the National Committee or on U.S.-China relations and scholars that testified before Congress in 1971, I would say the more, majority of them uh, had, it, had it right. We can have normal relations with both sides and, and maintain a one China within, a one, within our one China policy framework. Um, and that's the other thing is, is for, uh, a, a, joint, a, a communique for the establishment for normalization of relations probably would have to uh, – it, it, it's harder to ditch a one China policy than it is to come up with something totally new. And so whatever it is, uh, we require uh, a, a, a whatever within a, a very um, a liberal perspective on what one China is. And it already exists. Um, the, the, most, the clear statement on, on our one China policy made, at least in recent years, I'd say was 2004, made by um, uh, Assistant Secretary of State Jim Kelly, in which I, I think the question was posed to him, what is our one China? What is China? What is one China policy? And he said, I, I don't know, but I can tell you what it's not. It is not Beijing's one China principle, which their one China principle is, in fact, one, one country, two systems. Um, and so uh, my view, one China policy 
uh, in fact, from uh, it, it's uh, that U.S. doesn't take positions on outcomes between the two sides. That's for the two sides to uh, work out for themselves. But in terms of uh, the United States has a sovereign right to decide on how it relates to other legitimate governments around the world. Um, and I. That's true. Uh, however, it can have a much better view in terms of, for example, shared sovereignty. Is there something wrong with shared sovereignty? That makes all the sense in the world. Again, not taking positions on the outcome in terms of defining sovereignty within that one China context, but could you have a shared sovereignty solution in which you have normal relations with both sides, equal legitimacy? On this point, can I add yeah, one, absolutely. one yeah. point? Uh, a fourth think tank here, besides AEI and 2049 and Hudson, a fourth think tank under the leadership of John Tassick, former State Department Mandarin-speaking official, had two books published and had some conferences on this topic of normalization, what is one China policy, trying to get in the history of it. Later on, I read a story in a Taiwan newspaper that as soon as President Ma Ying-jeou took over, uh, pressure was brought to bear on heritage Foundation to fire John Tassick, to dismiss him from the Heritage Foundation. And John Tassick has preserved what we call the Li Mao Shang, the Chun Mo, a polite silence. But the Taiwan newspaper said that. So the message there was even if the Heritage Foundation raises this kind of topic, there will be immediate, not immediate, but within a couple of years, there will be sanctions on the person who does it. So I think the level of intimidation has to be kept in mind that just having the debate kept alive is considered in some quarters to be uh, dangerous. Not by the BBC. Not by, Not by the BBC. There's more hands up. Including two famous experts. Joe Bosco and Rick Fisher. I don't know mm -hmm. if you recognize them back in the back row or not. Mm -hmm. Their hands are up. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I'll, be, I'll be very brief. I'm Matthew Robertson with the Epoch Times. Um, I'm just curious about, I mean, this is about security, but, I mean, the broader definition of security, I mean, it seems the a, a potentially bigger threat to Taiwan is not just uh, the military one, but um, the CCP's political warfare against Taiwan and its undermining of Taiwan's institutions or what some read as, as that. Um, does the U.S. do you think have any role in trying to counter this, um, or any role at all in, in in this issue? Just one sentence answer. I'm with Ed Fulner back in 1979. We cannot be more Catholic than the Pope. We cannot. Fulner went on with the second sentence, saying we can't uh, ask for a full loaf when Taiwan is willing to settle for half a loaf. So you're raising the question of Taiwan feeling threatened or being the subject of political warfare. It's really a matter where Taiwan has to speak up, and they have not. They have not. I, I would, um, the short answer, uh, you, in terms of U.S. awareness of Chinese Communist Party political warfare, um, we published a study on, on, uh, on that uh, last year, quite uh, detailed. Uh, and, and the, in terms of understanding the political warfare is, is understanding that it's real in terms of the structure. Um, recently, there's been a lot of things in the press about the General Staff Department, Third Department. They're uh, China's uh, equivalent to the National Security Agency, NSA. 
Just to give you an idea on the scope of the political warfare, uh, they have a second-level department that is equal in stature and equal in grade to their equivalent of national security agency, their equivalent of the defense intelligence agency. So that just organizationally, that, that, that can sort of put things in perspective. Arguably, their general political department, liaison department, or GPDLD for short, which is, is equal to their second department, third department, that kind of thing, uh, arguably has more power. Uh, bear in mind, they're, they're an intel, their military intelligence community consists of three agencies, second department, which is their DIA, third department, which is their NSA, and then they view political warfare as not just intelligence but also influence. And look at their scope. Look at their scope. Um, they, uh, they use uh, platforms uh, that have sort of uh, some distance from them, but they're not all that – they don't care all that much about uh, uh, hiding it. Um, and uh, this platform is one that, for example, China Association for International Friendly Contact. They, they target uh, senior military officers uh, around the world, uh, retired uh, mostly. Uh, they do the retired guys. Um, the regular MND does the, in terms of military relations, they do uh, that side of it. And, and so uh, it's not just Taiwan, but it's, it's every single country in the world. The, uh, it happens in Washington, D.C. almost every day that there's political warfare. That happens every single day. Uh, and the United States, when, when the United States got rid of the U.S. Information Agency after the fall of the Soviet Union, believing that it was, it was over, bear in mind that the CCP political warfare structure is set up based on Soviet Union structure. In the Soviet Union, they call it uh, active measures. That was KGB Service A. Uh, in China's system, it was the same, same structure, same basic principles, where they define the verbiage, the vocabulary, they define the semantics that you use, um, and, uh, and that's what they do. To give you another example about how it's directed toward Taiwan, Taiwan right now has uh, five brigades of ballistic missiles directed at it every single day, opposite Taiwan. The political warfare structure is called, th- uh, it's, uh, it's a base, uh, just like 52 base that manages m- ballistic missiles. There's a base in Fuzhou uh, that consists of five regiments that do nothing every day but barrage Taiwan with propaganda. Uh, and with, uh, that's back, Propaganda is based upon psychological operations. And this isn't just loose stuff. This is strategic level stuff. Uh, they use the uh, Internet. Uh, they control the, the uh, media outlets that barrage Taiwan every single day through Hong Kong, for example. They use third-party uh, outlets through uh, Singapore and other places to be able to set the tone, to be able to set the debate, and to be able to pr- manage perceptions of uh, audiences, both civilian and military and around the world. So that's a just a quick answer. The short answer is yes, there is. In Taiwan, and I, I would I disagree somewhat, uh, Taiwan understands this better than anybody. There's nobody understands this better than Taiwan. They, they, they get it. It's instinctual there because they've lived under this threat for decades. Um, and, and it's just it's instinctual there in the U.S. and democracy in, in the U.S. Uh, it's a bit more difficult to even understand that such a thing exists. Rick. Seth, uh, thank you, and uh, uh, thanks to the panel for a very uh, stimulating discussion. I I'd just like to give uh, Misha, Seth, and, and the panel a chance to be uh, prescriptive. Misha, um, I think that what we've been seeing in the last week in Shanghai uh, is, is uh, the beginning of a movement toward a Sino-Russian uh, uh, alliance, the likes of which we haven't seen since the early 1950s, in which a much more intensive transfer of technology is going to be accompanied by political 
coincidence and coordination and perhaps even cooperation as, as we move out into the next months and, and years. Um, I, I don't think we have another two years to chase our tails in this town trying to figure out what to do about this because, Misha, if, if the number of parallel programs between the Russians and the Chinese are, are alarming enough from, from space to bombers to uh, aircraft carriers, submarines, when the Russians open the gates again to the technology to accelerate the Chinese programs, uh, we're going to have a power projection Chinese military that's, that's going to be creating multiple fronts. And it's not just going to be two fronts. Europe and in, in Asia. There are going to be fronts in Latin America, Africa, other places, the Arctic. And uh, my, my uh, question to the, to the panel is, okay, uh, what, what do we need to do to get out ahead of this? Because I think the other side of the, the, the uh, element of the Taiwan Relations Act that requires us to maintain the capacity to resist is, al is also a, a warning to ourselves that if we don't maintain that capacity, others are not going to band, wi band with us. Our alliances are going to uh, 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 wane. I'll stop there. Well, I'll just I'll kick it off uh, briefly, Rick. I mean, that's, you know, you've just identified the next year's worth of work easily for, for everyone. Uh, and so I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a, um, certainly a full answer. I'm not even sure I have a, uh, have a partial answer. But I, I would say, uh, let me just throw out one thing, that a lot of it is going to depend on, on the degree to which our, our partners and allies perceive the threat in the same way that, that we do. And I would say that if there is one good uh, uh, potential, it's that Japan has already been steadily moving in a direction where it uh, recognizes that it needs to play a larger role. It wants to play a larger role. There's lots of constraints on that. There's lots of disagreements on that. Uh, but it is, it is, you know, almost contemporaneous with what's happening on the, the, the Sino-Russian front. Uh, you know, the, um, the release last week of the, uh, the, the report on collective self-defense and uh, the, the new security strategy, I, I think that, you know, in terms of getting out ahead, it is to take as much advantage of this as as we can, and and move the Japanese uh, into uh, you know the, the type of relationship we've wanted to have with them. And, and again, um, Michael brought up the question of uh, the, the hidden history of restrictions on what we've actually wanted Japan to do in the region. And I think it, it probably goes beyond Taiwan, quite frankly. But you know, this it's a it's a new it's a new world. Now, the one of the biggest restraints on us in order to respond and act is uh, the fact that uh, Korea and, and Japan are, you know, at the nadir of their relations. And what I would actually be very worried about, more diagnostically than prescriptively, what I'd be very worried about is a Chinese and perhaps even a Chinese-Russian attempt to hive South Korea off even further from us. And I think we have to be very sensitive to that. And, and you know, the one thing in our favor is the Obama administration has a good working relationship with with Korea, uh, that that has its own sets of issues, but I think we need to be very sensitive to anything that tries to move them farther away from us. And then finally, I would just say, I agree with you completely. I mean, I'm, you know, like everyone, I'm just starting to look at it all. Uh, but what I would say from a historical perspective is uh, that uh, these two, Russia and China, uh, historically are their own worst enemies in terms of any types of better, long-term better relations. And and they start going down that road, I think that it's going to be a, um, 
the, uh, uh, the, the negative aspects of it will probably crop up even more quickly than we anticipate the positives coming. Uh, and, and that may limit the degree to which they actually do this. How do we how do we how do we exploit those weaknesses today and not and not let this carry yeah. on for a decade? Yeah, we should. Well, uh, we've reached noon, or a little bit after noon. Um, so I think the panel will probably stick around for a couple of minutes. Yo, Vasco, no question. Are there questions? Vody, have questions? Sure. I wanted to thank uh, Mike for the uh, for the history lesson. Fantastic presentations by all of you. In fact, Mike, if you look at St. John's Review a couple years ago, I did a, an analysis of the history, which in, uh, may have some relevance to what you were discussing about today. I've not seen that. Okay, St. John's Review two years ago. Uh, but the and I've got a piece coming out on history as well. But the premise of the entire you make the point, I think, a valid one that the, that U.S. policy has been entrenched in terms of a pro-China orientation, a pro-China bias. But all of that was premised uh, on the assumption that engagement, that working with China, that bringing China into the international community would moderate and soften its policies, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy. Mm -hmm. It's clear over the last few years that, that that premise has been unfounded, that China has rejected in fact, Kissinger states in his book on China mm -hmm. that, that Beijing doesn't accept the international order it, with which it had no part in, in, in creating. So we've seen that now in the, in the South China Sea, the East China Sea. Uh, Beijing rejects the, uh, the basic premises of the international order. So given that, uh, I think one can make the, the statement that our policy has been a monumental and historic failure in terms of the entire premise of engagement with China. Uh, one sentence reply. Uh, I really admire Kissinger's book on China. I thought the reviews were unfair. They focused on human rights and things he never did and whether he loves Mao and Zhou Enlai or not. What Kissinger did in that book is he rethought the original assumptions he and Nixon and Ford had. And justified and, them. And he Well, but he criticizes himself, and he draws on some work done here at Hudson by a guy named Abe Shulsky, yeah. uh, that the Chinese, when provoked, prefer the use of force in a sudden, sharp, psychological surprise attack. You know, after they years of preparing psychologically to undermine the, the will of yes, the opponent. Yes, they then withdraw. They don't, it's not like Hitler occupying territory or Lebensraum. They then withdraw and he opens his book with the story of 1962 and India. Then he works in a lot of Chinese warring states, uh, proverbs, and the approach they have to the, why the use of force against another country should be, according to China, should be forgiven. It was just a message or a signal to make you kind of sober up. And Kissinger spends a whole uh, chapter on this. Then he says a World War I-style conflict could break out between the U.S. and China. It's a chapter on that. So this is a very different uh, set of assumptions than Kissinger held back in 71, 72. So Kissinger, in many ways, has shown the way for both the hidden history 
and to rethink his assumptions. Now, others ought to follow his example. Okay. We ought to have accountability, in my yeah. view, for please those who were wrong. Please read my review in, uh, of, of Kissinger's book in St. John's Review. Kissinger said two years ago that Taiwan should make its accommodation with Beijing as quickly as possible because, quote, China will not wait forever. Nixon, who was also the real politiker at that time, changed his view on China and Taiwan and indicated that the situation has now evolved, uh, Taiwan being a permanent democracy. There is no reason for the U.S. to favor China in that relationship any further. So we should have a form of diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Anyway, that gets to the question I was going to ask, which is, what do you think uh, of, you talked about the capabilities of, the, of Taiwan in terms of resisting the U.S., the China uh, aggression, and Michael talked about the uh, intentions of U.S. policy referred to Russert's uh, statements on the Hill, six assurances. What is wrong with the U.S. declaring the end of strategic ambiguity? That would be a first step in terms of a normalization of relations, declaring that it is in both our interest, our geopolitical interest, and our moral values for us to defend Taiwan against any form of aggression from China. Another conference, perhaps? <laughs> Just very quick, the strategic ambiguity, in my view, it usually has a military context. Um, it, it's much better off to uh, – the basic idea of, of getting rid of strategic ambiguity is best applied at the political level. In other words, be explicit about granting legitimacy to governments on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. That is the best form of strategic uh, – getting rid of uh, – in terms of – that is the ambiguous aspect that really should be done away with and be much more clear about having normal relations with both sides. That's the best form. It's, it's really a, a political problem. Military is, is, is an important part of it, but um, I, it's really the political issue that needs to be addressed at, at the heart of it. And are we ready for a psychological surprise attack by China? They do it to us every single day. If something like that is done with Taiwan? They, they, are, they already do it. They've done it to us since 1971. And been, they've been, this, this is a success. They have pulled the wool over our eyes to be able to fool us and what the objective reality is that you have two legitimate governments, RSC and PRC, and they have, they have kicked our butt when it comes to political warfare by not having us realize objective reality. You get the last word. Uh, I've had a chance uh, myself uh, several years ago to observe close hand as director of international broadcasting for the government um, our public diplomatic efforts, and my, so my remarks on the questions of our preparedness for responding to or conducting psychological warfare um, wouldn't take more than a couple of seconds, and we don't even have that at this point. So uh, thank you very much for your thoughtful questions and your, uh, your excellent listening, and thank you, panel, for uh, fine presentations, and this discussion will indeed be continued. Sure. Afternoon. <coughs> yes, sir. Good to see you. Good to see you.